Hey, it's time for Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. And I'm Dr. Lisa, you know, the self-proclaimed psychotherapist. Ha, ha, ha. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, the greatest station in the Western Hemisphere. Um, anyway, you know, um, wow. You know what? I want to tell you guys something. This is going to be my last show, live show for the summer, and then I'm going to do best ofs all summer. So be ready for that, okay? Because I'm taking the summer off. I am going to Togo, Africa. I am going to perform. At, I'm going to do a performance uh, pretending I'm a grandma in a, in a performance festival. I'm not kidding. Isn't that crazy? And then I booked a couple of weeks by myself. Thank you. Thank you for allowing, no, without, without my husband, like where I don't have to deal with the other people in June, July and shit like that. So, um, I'll be thinking about you. Okay. I'll be thinking about you. And also you're getting like the best of my catalog, which is like 350 episodes. All right. You should be happy about it. You get a break from me. Anyway, um, like I said, thanks for listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. Please check us out online, RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. We are a 501C. Um, we do so many great things for the community. And we're really, it's a really worthwhile organization to donate to. Um, we're also uh, uh, promoting cancer screening for Men's Health Month. And I think that's really, I think that's really important because men don't get enough attention about their health. But even so, I'm being cynical, but even so, I think, you know, you guys, you know, you guys are like, uh, you know, I'm tough. You guys are humans. Okay. That body is fallible. I'm sorry. Maybe you don't think you're fallible, but that body is just a regular old body, no matter what you think about it. So, uh, time for some free, if you're over 45, you can get a free cancer screening and go to NY Cancer Screening. All right? There you go. So I'm going to tell you about my guest who I have on today. I'm the most amazing guest. Um, she is, like, talented in every single way. I, I mean, just about. It just she's, she, it's, she's hard to categorize, but I'm going to say comedy... Uh, design, painting. I'll tell you, let me read a little of the bio and see if we can get through it. Okay, let's get a little, let's get, let's get a little through the bio. She's an author, designer, painter, and educator who her impressive body of work encapsulates her vivacious, outspoken, and colorful personality. I will vouch, uh, personally, I will vouch for that, okay? Her most recent book, How to Make Mistakes on Purpose, was the subject of a TED Talk, which was fabulous. I will make a post about that. And she has this touring workshop of the same name. And we're going to talk about that in a second. She gave me the book. It's right. So, um, but before we, I want to talk about that. But I also just want you to know, she also wrote four books. Four books. This woman's amazing. This woman is amazing. Um, And then, like, she's done illustration, product design, all this stuff. For the Atlantic, Bloomingdale's, Fiorucci uh, Ikea, Wall Street Journal, Whitney Museum. And I'm only reading a small portion because we only have an hour. She also designed a typeface. She's taught uh, graphic design. She's won all these awards. She was nominated for an Emmy. Okay, are you impressed already? Um, 
Okay. So anyway, uh, yeah. Okay. And she's on my show. Can you get over it? So hi, Lori. Hello. Can you get get a little closer? To, get a little closer to the mic. How's the mic that? likes that the mic likes you. It wants better? you to get close. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Lori, did I cover? Did I cover it? I would so say I, so. You think so? There's a lot there. Yeah. Um, but um, I wanted to um, talk to you about this book and your workshop because that's really what your life is focused on right now. And let me just read the quote on the cover, okay, guys? Guys, listen to this. This is a quote. Lori's voice is fresh sounding, funny, and completely her own. <clears throat> David Sedaris. Okay. So David Sedaris wrote the quote. You must, well, you and David Sedaris must know each other, right? You have similar sensibilities. Yes, I'd say we're friends. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That does not surprise me one little bit. Um, So tell us about the workshops and the book and that whole aspect of what you're doing. Okay, well, I've been doing the workshops for 30-something years. Um, I started out doing it in when I was teaching in in different art schools. One one of them was Camberwell in London, and... um, I was, uh, okay, I was um, sort of feeling like we were getting into a pattern, so I just had them, like, draw really, 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 really fast, um, like a factory, because what happens is when people were getting, and that was in the 90s, you know, uh, and every minute we've had digital technology since it started, you know, like, since I, when did I get my first back, like, 89 or somewhere in there, 88, and uh, you forget that, it affects everything that you do and computers don't make mistakes. And I think what's happened over the years is that now there's three generations really of people that have grown up with digital technology and we need basically a kick in the pants or some kind of sabotage to bring back, uh, you could call it mistakes or accident or chance or serendipity. That's what my workshops are about is to sabotage the everyday digital perfect problem-solving world that we live in and bring in something random. It's really about the random and how that can help you. It's super practical. Well, what I love about your approach is that it's really great for like everybody. You're really talking about some very basic cognitive skills, aren't you? Like where you're kind of like writing by hand as opposed to writing on a computer, right? It's like just in, you're, you're talking about getting in touch with your in, innate creativity and instincts well that's part of it but i think that the main reason that the workshops are so fun and popular is that um rather than trying to focus on making one good thing uh you know i always talk about the guy that invented velcro right Mm -hmm. he he, uh went walking in Mm -hmm. the woods and he got these little sticky plants these burrs stuck on his pants and he said oh and then he was playing with them and Mm -hmm. then so oh you know look at this what what is what can this do and he saw they stuck together and then he invented velcro but what he didn't do was sit in a perfect white laboratory and say, you know, I'm going to be creative now. And what the world needs is a new way to stick stuff together. And I'm going to be creative and invent that now. No, something natural happened, something natural. chaotic. Natural. And I want to bring that back. So it's right. really about a way of thinking. Right. And uh, what I like is that I'm not against digital anything. I'm, I use it every second like we all do, and I'm going to keep using it. And people that say we should go back to some analog world, they're, you know, they're living in a dream world. It's not going to happen. So you have to accept it. But what I like is to mix it up, mm-hmm. to bring the digital and the 
analog Mm -hmm. world of mistakes and sabotage and surprise and chaos Mm -hmm. together and Mm -hmm. mush them together because I think that's where exciting things happen Mm -hmm. when you have something blobby and organic Mm -hmm. and and crazy with something very strict and geometric and 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 logical and you smash them together that's what I like to do and and the thing is it's um you've done I mean you the thing about it is it works for so many different kinds of groups, right? Because you've traveled all over the world to do this and you've done it in corporate environments. Tell us a little bit about the different environments. And also, I know you've gotten letters and stuff. I want to hear a little bit about the feedback. Yeah, I mean, I've gotten great responses from all kinds of different people. I mean, I've done it for like 200 people. I did it for a herd of elk in Canada. I did it for... <laughs> what did wait? I No, I did. I did it for the Prince of Sweden. Wow. Um, the, the, the elk just showed up at one of my workshops oh. in Banff, Alberta, Canada. Oh, my God. I'm actually going back to Vancouver uh, in a few days to teach there. But um, they just showed up. It was incredible. And, and some of that I put on a YouTube video. I oh, have a lot of mistakes funny. workshop videos on, on YouTube. But um, uh, then, you know, the Prince of Sweden one was there was this I, I taught at RISD where I went to school, Rhode yeah. Island School of Design. And this is many years ago, and there was a Swedish guy in the class. And because I've been living in Sweden on and off for for many years, and I speak Swedish, we were chatting in Swedish, and he was very nice, very shy, very good looking with long, dark hair. And then that was that. And then a few months later, I was in Sweden talking to the head of the art school in Stockholm, and he said, you know, the prince is going to RISD. I said, really? Uh, and I said, well, there was a Swedish guy in my class. And he said, well, was that? I said, I don't know. His name, <laughs> his name was Kalle. And Kalle is like Charlie in Swedish. Uh. And the name, it's, it's a nickname for Car- Prince Carl Philip. And I was, still wasn't sure it was him. But then I went to the train station or all these postcards. And it was him. But he was incognito at RISD. And oh. so, yeah. So now mm. I'm 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 a kungliga hövleverantör, mm-hmm. which is the, a way of saying by appointment to the royal family. Oh, nice! Uh, I would nice. like to. Yeah, that's my big. But you, you really like people. You can you can work with any kind of group, right? Yeah, well, like you're valuable like to Johnson, any. Johnson Johnson and Johnson yeah. did it, and they did it on Zoom right in the middle of the pandemic. And I thought it was the first time I'd done it on Zoom, and I thought it would be boring, but it wasn't. It was really fun. Well, you're anyway. Funny. Well, you know, we had a good she time. She used to do comedy. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> no, I mean, seriously. Okay, no. go ahead. Anyway, um, it, it, I've done it for a lot of people that have nothing to do with art and design. My favorite group, in fact, is a bunch of people. They could be business people. They could be in sales, in financial world, anything. And, you know, or marketing, all that. Uh, and they show up and they have no idea what's going to happen except that, you know, somebody says, oh, at, you know, one o'clock, there's a workshop called How to Make Mistakes on Purpose. And then they come into the room and they have no idea what's mm. going to happen. And I always make everybody that takes the workshop swear, you know what omerta is? No. It's the mafia code of silence. Uh. So I make everybody swear that they don't tell anybody the big secret. And I won't tell you either. But something happens in that room, and it's fun to have a secret, I think. Yeah. So that you can tell people later, oh, it was a great workshop, I loved it, you should do it. Or you can say it was totally worthless, it stank, Lori's an idiot. But you can't say what goes on in that room, like how we do it. Well, you know, I love that because it's kind of like therapy where um, whatever you say in there, you're free to say anything, you're free to do anything because no one's going to 
caught, you know, no one's good. It just stays in the room. Exactly. I think open mics are like that. No what, one ever cares. What happens in, in mistakes on purpose stays in mistakes on, on purpose. purpose. So we love that. And um, I, uh, I encourage anybody. I mean, you, you do small groups, large groups. Yeah. Is it good for artists? Yeah, it's very good for so artists. So well, how would because we have a lot of artists here. So how would you help an artist just for just so they under, so we can all understand quickly? Well, I think I think the key with well for artists or really for anybody, but is a quantity, not quality, mm-hmm. and that if you get away from the idea of doing one good thing um, or being inventive or creative, I think like trying to be creative, I always say, works about as well as trying to be charming. It just doesn't work. So what you do is you get away from that, you throw that out the window, and you just say, we're just going to make a whole bunch of stuff. We're going to do a whole mm-hmm. lot of things in a big, big hurry, and I'm going to play disco music, and we're going to giggle. And sometimes, you know, we have a drinks party or a dance party after. It's very social. People get together. Oh. Um, some people, I hate the word team building exercise, but <laughs> you can think of it that way if you want to. I don't. I really don't care. Well, Anything that gets people in the room is a good thing because yeah. uh, it does promote silliness and uh togetherness and it's super fun and it's totally stress-free because there's no critique i'm never you know saying oh that what you did there that's really good or that's really bad or it works or it doesn't basically it's like it's like inviting people to take part in being like a factory um where there's never any comments and you don't really have time to look at what you're doing because it goes so fast. Right, so we right. use the idea of speed and, you know, carelessness to our advantage because what happens is when you're, when you're focused on making one good thing, uh, it's the kiss of death. Yeah. But when you make a hundred things in a hurry, you'd be amazed that there's some beautiful, beautiful, yeah. brilliant results. And I'm yeah. not saying you're going to invent something as good as penicillin, which was also a, mm-hmm. you know, a, right. quest, a, a mistake on purpose, not on purpose, but Fleming right, right. left some and, dirty and, and, right. dishes in a sink and right. it became penicillin. But the thing is that if you keep, when you're 20 or 30 and you have, like, let's say you're really good at some digital program, whatever it is, or you're just good at your job, um, and good at solving problems. That's wonderful. You can make your boss happy, or if you're at school, you can make your teacher happy. You can guarantee a good result, whatever you're working on. But what if you're 30 and 40 and 50 and 60, and you've kept repeating that same mm-hmm. uh, winning combination where mm-hmm. you can guarantee the results? That's where you get into trouble because what new thing have you discovered? It, you need to throw in a curveball. You need something that will disturb the status quo and that pattern. So that's what I do in a mm-hmm. workshop. You, there's nothing wrong with problem solving. I don't want to throw that mm-hmm. out the window. But what if you spend one day instead of problem mm-hmm. solving where you, where you bring in chaos and randomness mm-hmm. and fun uh, and sabotage into your process, mm-hmm. whatever it is. So that's all it is. Yes, it's just so you're one day, pe- one afternoon, a few hours uh, to allow people to do that. Right, right, right. It sounds great. It, it really, is. really does. And, and something really helpful. And the way that you have it set up, it really, it it's sort of like you put this structure around something that people can just go nuts. Indeed. Yes. Yeah, so but, but it's safe. And it's safe. <laughs> Don't yeah. worry. No. We haven't had any heart attacks yet. <laughs> well, 
I mean, I don't know if that's a good thing. No, okay. Um, so anyway, um, well, I mean, you you certainly, I certainly would love to do one sometime. You have to let me know. Uh, but I'm going to post about all this stuff in the book. The book is, is like, what a great gift. Thank you, Lori. Like, this book is not like any other book. I can't even just... The ho- I can't describe it, okay? you got to see it. I want to tell you about my favorite chapter in the book. Okay, go ahead. Okay, there's a chapter called There's a Nipple in My Room, mm-hmm. which is about, I was going to do the workshop. Um, it turned out later that this was a super conservative. I knew it was sort of conservative, but they were like right-wingers, like the opposite of anything I've ever experienced in, um, uh, whatchamacallit, where we were, uh, Grand Rapids in Michigan, mm-hmm. right in the middle of the country, right? And it was a whole, it was like a consortium of a whole bunch of different businesses to bring up the profile of Grand Rapids mm-hmm. as a business location. Da, da, da. Mm-hmm. It was in this big, beautiful hotel, but it was an old mm-hmm. hotel. And that's where it was. And I walk into my hotel room in the hotel where the workshop is going to happen. And there's, you know, thousands of people, or a thousand mm-hmm. anyway, at this conference. Um, and I walk in and there's a huge picture of a nipple on the wall. I couldn't believe it. And I thought, oh my God, you know, like Grand Rapids, this hotel, the, the right. hotel was a lot more, you know, advanced. But then I look closer and in the corner it said like tumbleweed, like it was supposed to be a tumbleweed. And there's a picture in the book, maybe you can even post it on the thing yeah. of the nipple. And it's obviously a nipple. But the thing is that, even if it was supposed to be a tumbleweed, it was so shocking because if you're used to going to, you know, the Whitney Biennial, which mm, is just the beginning right. and it's just full of, you know, flagrant sexual, you know, extremely right. sometimes disturbing and upsetting and controversial images. But in a very conservative town hotel room in this beige, you know, environment, mm-hmm. you don't expect to see a big mm-hmm. picture of a nibble. So I thought this is fantastic. So I wrote about it. And it's also about like, you know, like the story of Bluebeard. There's like, if you know that story, there's a, there's one of the three sisters, the youngest one says, wait a minute, there's something wrong with this guy. This His beard is blue. And this is before hair dye became popular. You know, this is in the olden days. And the sisters are saying, no, no, he's rich. He's famous. He's a nobleman. You know, he's okay. But of course, he has all these bodies buried in the basement, right? Mm-hmm. So, but you have to tell it like it is. Like mm-hmm. nobody else is talking mm. about the nipple in the room mm-hmm. of the Grand Amway right. Plaza Hotel. Right. So I nominated it for an art prize, but then it turned out the people that were doing the art prize were the same people. Anyway, it's a long story, uh, yeah. but basically that's another point so, of the book so, is that you have to say it, like like notice things and call things out when you see them, mm-hmm. you know, and because it, it's all about context, right. you know, it's everything. Right. everything. That that picture was so much more exciting than anything I've seen in the Whitney Biennial mm-hmm. or any modern museum. Mm-hmm. But could you see a tumbleweed in it? You'd have to try. Mm-hmm. It was such a nipple. <laughs> I'm going to check that out. You should. So, and I was so just to um, bring bring the bring you listeners up to speed before. Um, before you listeners got here, um, I was telling Laurie, this is a very, per- this, this, Laurie's visit, um, being in the room with Laurie, um, is, is, is very, um, there's a lot of counter-transference. It brings up a lot of feelings for me. So this is going to be a little bit more unusually about me, I think, than most of these shows, because I identify so closely with Laurie. I mean, we're, 
same age. We, you know, I worked at, I studied illustration. She studied illustration. I worked in advertising as an art director for 30 years. Lori had an incredible career. Um, she knows a lot of uh, people that are very, you know, people that I only heard of. She knows them, stuff like that. So I know the business that Lori's involved in. And um, Lori is somebody that I certainly was in all the books and magazines that me in my job in my as an art director in an ad agency would be reading about. And I want to use the word envious because I'm afraid of that I, of pretending that I'm not envious and I'm not sure what I really mean by that. But I also want to say admire and respect and in awe. So I am very, very curious to find out how Lori, who seems like somebody who really, I could be wrong about this, but Lori is somebody who really seems like she's followed her own path um, and doesn't seem to have a lot of self doubt and has really manifested um, as far as design, advertising, illustration, any of those commercial arts, an ideal career. And I want to find out how she did it. Um, and I guess I'm thinking, what does she have that I don't have? And there's a lot of things in there. <laughs> well, she's obviously super, super talented, but also just so natural. And that's what I'm really interested in learning about. And and you're okay with that, Lori? Uh, all that? Sure. I'm okay with all of that. <laughs> so, um, first of all, you're incredibly prolific and you've done so well in so many things. So how did you even like, just to even get into RISD, how did, you know, I didn't, well, what happened? Well, I didn't get into RISD. I applied to RISD. I went to a really tiny school called Solbury in New Hope, Pennsylvania. It was a boarding school. It was like 250 students. And I was the big art star. So I thought I was God's gift to art. Then I applied to RISD, which in the 70s, this is 73 or 72, whatever. Uh, wait, you're I mean, yeah, you're yeah. younger than you. So it would have been 73 for you, yeah, 74 73 for me. When I graduated, I just, yeah, mm-hmm. I just had my 50th reunion right. a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Anyway, so... Um, anyway, graduating high school, I applied to a few other schools, but I knew I was going to go to RISD because that was the place. Absolutely. Then, more than now, it was, you know, considered the art school. And I didn't get it. I never figured out why, but I was so heartbroken that I went to the school the furthest away, which was CCAC then. Now it's called CCA in Oakland, California College of Art. And I spent a year doing printmaking with Robert Bechtel, who was a great teacher and a great printmaker. And I had a little white dog and a little white Fiat. And I, I lived in all these weird hippie houses. And then I reapplied to RISD and I got in. I never found out why I didn't or why I did. Mm-hmm. And then I drove across Canada through the in the year of the Arab oil embargo. Oh, wow. And then I went to RISD. But I didn't get in the first time. Uh-huh. And then I also had a very checkered career at RISD because I applied, you know, to go to, into the graphic design department because I like type, mm-hmm. even though I really didn't know what graphic design was. I always had mm-hmm. a thing for letter lettering and typography. Mm-hmm. And so then I did that. And it was so boring because at that time you could only use universe and very boring mm-hmm. photographs in gray and there was no color and it was mm-hmm. totally humorless. And I thought, oh, no, I've made a big mistake. You know, it was the Swiss style. It was mm-hmm. grids and everything. So I said, okay, I better go into illustration work and at least draw. And so 
I went into illustration and there they were doing like children's book type mm-hmm. stuff that I didn't like. And then I decided I want to go back to graphic design. I'd made a mistake and they wouldn't let me back unless <laughs> I took an extra year and we mm-hmm. got in a big fight. Mm-hmm. I got in a fight with the head of the department. So I ended up in painting. And now <laughs> I always joke, I always joke that, you know, I'm 67 and I still haven't picked a major. Which I haven't. I do, I do illustration, I do graphic design, I do painting, and I do writing, and I've done some comedy. And for me, it's just all one thing. For other people, it's a problem. But for me, I've always done all of those things. Mm. And since I was born, really, I've well, always liked like to do all those things. This is what I'm saying. You've yeah. done well following your own path. So how are you, um, how did you be, how did you like, how did you grow up? How Was creativity a big part in your family? Where did you grow up? Did you have a lot of, did you brothers, sisters? Where did you grow up? Okay, well, I grew up mostly in Manhattan. I was born in Manhattan, but my parents split up when I was three, and then I moved with my mother to Detroit for a few years, mm-hmm. which created my taste in music, which is basically Motown mm-hmm. still. Mm-hmm. Then um, we lived in Connecticut for a couple of years, and the whole time I was begging my mother to go back to New York. Mm um cuz nobody understood me in those other places and sure. i just miss new york and um my father was married four times mm-hmm. and i don't have uh brothers and i have two half brothers that are older than me mm-hmm. um from my father's first marriage but um and then i have an ex stepsister who was a singer christina not Christina Aguilera, but just Christina, who made some really interesting records, uh, like Doll in a Box for Z Records mm-hmm. in the 80s. Mm. But she died uh, mm. a few years ago. Uh. But she uh, was a really interesting uh, musician. Mm-hmm. And then um, I basically, the way I look at it, I sort of brought myself up. I mean, you know, my mother was a very severe manic depressive. Mm. My father was an alcoholic and Mm. he wasn't really around. Mm -hmm. You know, I would visit him on holidays and stuff. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and we moved, I went to 16 schools before college. Wow. So, because my mother was just finding fault with everything Mm. and we kept moving, because she was crazy. She was really crazy. So I feel like it was a kind of DIY, do-it-yourself experience, my childhood, Mm -hmm. because I was, from the beginning, I knew my mother was nuts, and I would have to, like, you know, decide stuff. And Like, uh, can you give us... Well, I actually, um, I knew that I was going to inherit some money from my grandparents on my father's side who had money, and... uh, I had, you know, some kind of, you know, trust fund. And I sent, went to them when I was, I think, 12. I mm-hmm. went to the right people and I said, listen, my mother's nuts. She, I, I can't live with her anymore. I want to go to boarding school. Oh, and wow. she wanted, she didn't want me to. She wanted to, you know, I mean, she didn't have any money really. But uh, uh, I knew there was this money that I could maybe access. So I asked permission and so I did that. I went to wow. that boarding school in Pennsylvania to get That's away from her. So impressive. So I didn't live at home since I was thirteen. That's so impressive. So I that had you to had get away from her. You. Yeah. So then I traveled all over Europe alone at fourteen, and I did a lot of things. When I look about, when I look at it now, it seems pretty advanced. But when I was do, doing it then, it seemed normal. Like I was mm-hmm. older than I really was. Yeah. Or, or I felt like it was you completely. Were completely normal. Mm-hmm. Um, what is so your, I've always been very independent. Mm-hmm. What are your pa- what did your parents 
What did, what did they do? Well, it's a good question. My father was a sculptor. I actually just came back from, I was in Paris teaching this uh, mistakes workshop for mm-hmm. ATPI or ITPI. I don't know how you pronounce it, but ATYPI is a really great um, uh, organization of typography enthusiasts mm-hmm. from all over the world. And so I taught the How to Make Mistakes workshop there, and I went to his old studio. My father lived in Paris before my mother, uh, uh, when, um, he, well, after his first marriage, after the war, there were a lot of GIs, a lot of Americans that stayed in Paris, and among them a lot of artists. And he had a studio at number eight, Rue Saint-Julien-le-Pauvre, and I went there and I, I posed in the same pose that he was like leaning up against the wall of the studio and there's actually going to be a show at the gray art gallery at nyu with a lot of those artists in february 2024 wow um and there's a picture of him in the catalog because uh he was friends with like david smith shinjiki tajiri um and there was an there was a couple of african-american artists that you know had much more success in Paris than they would have had <laughs> uh, in, in the States. Um, Haywood, Bill Rivers, and another guy. Um, and there were some, uh, Al Held was one of the, wow. I mean, there were so many people that became famous later wow. that first showed at that studio that he wow. let them use as a gallery. Wow. So he was a sculptor, and he was a really good sculptor, but he was an even better drunk. And he didn't really ever make a name for himself mm. as a sculptor because he was, you know, wine, women, and song, mm-hmm. basically. And his, his family, he he had some support. Yes. So, so that, he had money in his family. Yeah, so, that, that can, so that made it possible for him right. to not, you know, sell or be, you know, successful. What did his parents, how did, I mean, like, did he come from an overachieving family? A lot of pressure. No, 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 no. Okay. I wouldn't. I wouldn't put it that way. But like I said, in it was really my great grandfather that had made money, and mm-hmm. that you know he inherited. Yeah, uh, that so, he was able to get away right. with it, not so it was making, a, making a living. And my mother had, you know, when they divorced, a settlement uh, which wasn't very good from him. Um, you know, and we we lived very modestly, me and right. my mother. Um, but, you know, I think that coming from uh, my father's family and the, I guess the attitudes about money really did help me uh, not be afraid. It wasn't really, I wasn't really thinking about making a living ever. I mean, I did make a living, but I never made a lot of money. I never made what would be considered good money, especially in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't have been able to, you know, live the way that I did because I had some money left and I bought a loft in 1981 mm-hmm. um, oh, wow. when it cost uh, like a hundred grand. Yeah, right. You know? And so that very one thing made it possible for me to live much better than I normally would have mm. uh, under other circumstances, mm. you know? Um, because illustration has never paid well. I mean, it's re- oh well, that's not true. I think it did in the fifties or the forties. <laughs> no, really. Yeah, Where I you think had you're like right. a Saturday Evening Post, right? And right. Paul Rand would be chatting right. with the head of Cummings, you know, and or whatever fashion uh, uh, illustration. Yeah, I was in love with yeah, fashion and everything was. So I would say, but but um, now it's really bad because those yeah. magazines don't exist anymore, yeah. of course. But I mean, I made a okay 
well, living, living it, doing both work for Condé Nast as a as a editorial designer. Yeah, I worked for GQ. I worked for briefly for Allure. I worked for Mademoiselle in the eighties, which was really fun. Um, doing layouts, you know, and I worked at the New York Times Magazine was my very first job. Wow! The first thing I did was color color in the squares of the Sunday crossword with ruby lith. Do you know what ruby yes, lith is? I yeah. do. Okay, I do. It's cutting out little red, you know, like film to color in the black squares. Uh, so I learned on the job. Pre computer guys, you don't know anything about this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, what you you. Those are all like really like, I mean, I think about like, say we were, you know, I was like, whatever, working in a, as an assistant in a design, very lowly job in a design studio at the same time. And like, to me, what you were doing took so much talent, like you had to have a really high level of quality in your work to be able to do it. Like, how did you feel? Like, I would have, I can't even imagine getting hired in a situation like that. Well, I lied my way in there. I absolutely lied. I went in with my portfolio to the New York Times Magazine. At that time, the art director was, was, was Ruth Ansell. And I went in, and there was a guy, Charlie Churchward, who later was an art director at Vogue. And he looked at my portfolio of illustrations. And I think I must have seen like a crazy person because I had these illustrations that were 30 by 40 inches, white ink on black paper. And everybody knows that illustrations are like two inches black on white. Mm -hmm. And they were just insane. But I said, oh, by the way, I can also do mechanicals. And not only could I not do mechanicals, but I didn't know what they were. Mm. Somebody told me it was a good way to make money. Mm -hmm. So I lied. And then he left a message on my answering machine, which was a cassette in those days. And I would and said, can you come in on Monday? We need somebody to do mechanicals at the magazine. And I freaked out because I didn't know what it was. And I got a book called Production for the Graphic Designer. I read it cover to cover, didn't understand a word, showed up on Monday. There was a proportion wheel on my desk. I looked at it. I asked some guy next to me, I said, what's this? And it was obvious I didn't know anything because that was the main tool you used mm -hmm. to to uh, size. Like we would have yeah. photostats yeah, I know. of all the yeah. photographs that were going yeah. in the layouts. So you'd say it needs to be 88% yeah, or 20%. These guys aren't getting any of so, that. No, but this was before computers. Yeah, right. You no, made, it was complicated. You, you had to know shit. How you laid out exactly. a magazine. Exactly. So I this learned on that job And everything. did they know you didn't know anything? Well, it became obvious right away. And they taught you? Well, not on purpose. They just liked me, I guess. Yeah, because see, I had a very parallel where I got a job like I would lie too about doing mechanicals, but I like would always be so nervous when I got there. I just ex I just exuded insecurity, like I didn't know what I was doing, and I couldn't get rid. I could I couldn't help. I couldn't control it. So the shit never, you know. I I mean, it was really hard, but like. So what would it, if I'd been, like, were you comfortable? Did you think it was going to be okay? Like, what what would it have been like? Well, you didn't, but also, I know I'm interrupting myself and you, and I'm sorry about that. I Excuse me. But, <laughs> so what I'm also imagining, though, from your childhood is that I'm picturing somebody who, I mean, is just incredibly self-sufficient and never was really questioned. Like, you... It sounds like you had to take charge as a child growing up of you and your mother, your family. Is that right? I would say in a, in a certain way. I mean, she wasn't 
incapable of taking care of me. I don't mm-hmm. want to sound like no, that. No, but she made sure that I was clothed and fed and yeah. you know, I was never, you know, out on the street. There was not even not remotely. No, there was but she was just crazy. So she was crying all the time and, you know, threatening to kill herself and all that stuff. So that was, you know, what gave me the it was a necessity that I um, I also relied on other people. Like, for instance, I had a boyfriend when I was really young that uh, had a wonderful set of parents, especially his mother, who was a painter. And I sort of moved into their apartment. I remember working in their building as an elevator operator during an elevator strike uh, because there were a lot of doctors on the build in the building on East 86th Street. And um, I, 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 I glommed on to the right people. I think... Uh, I may be talented as an artist or whatever, but I think by far my biggest talent is for making friends and to, because I didn't have brothers or sisters. Right. I didn't really have the kind of family you could rely on. Right. Uh, when I was growing up, I was really close with my dogs. I always had a dog. I insisted on having a dog, but um, I really needed like other people uh, around me that, that I could trust. And I found them, you know, mm. in different ways. I and, found really you, good friends, and I'm really good at keeping friends. Uh, and it's very, 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 very important to me. Like, you know, maybe too important to me, but that's it. I don't have, right? you know, I don't have a, a partner. I don't have children. I have friends, you know, and um, I'm very, very lucky that uh, I, I have some good ones mm-hmm. because I, I, I really needed other people to help me. Well, I mean, it also sounds like you must be a really trustworthy person that you were able to form trusting relationships. Uh, but, but also... But I love shoplifting. <laughs> well, that's not about trust. <laughs> Are you a compulsive shoplifter? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's a skill. That's a, like a compulsion and a I skill. I really like getting away Have with it. Have you been in therapy? I haven't asked you that. Yeah, a long time ago, I was in therapy for years, and then I realized that it didn't... I, I knew all along it didn't work. My parents put me in therapy because they knew that they were screwing me up. Uh, but out of their guilt, they, they... I remember there was like a therapist who had like foam rubber animals that would like jump out. I was like two, you know? And then I, I wrote in my book, I wrote this book called All the Wrong People Have Self-Esteem. And and it was supposed to be for teenage girls, but I really think it's for anybody who thinks it's funny. And and in this book, I tell this story about you know these different therapists that I've had and stuff. And one of them, well, there was there's one story that I was walking by this building where our fam- best friends, mm-hmm. my my best friend, her family lived, and her mother used to give these fabulous brunches. Uh, and this was when she was still alive in the early 90s or something on the Upper West Side where I grew up. And so uh, they still lived there, right? So I walked by our old building, which is 350 Central Park West on 94th, 95th Street mm-hmm. and Central Park. Nice. A- and, um, and we had the penthouse apartment. So I asked the uh, doorman, who lives in the penthouse? And he said, well, which one? And then the last time I'd been there, I was three. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was asking the question, I was like 40. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, uh, it faced the park and uh, downtown, because I remember the windows, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, that's Dr. Leifer. So I go home and I write a postcard. Dear Dr. Leifer, I was a baby in your apartment. Could I go look for a minute? And uh, anyway, to make a long story short, I ended up going there. And I walk into my bedroom, and where my crib was, was the psychiatric couch. 
Oh my God. I, I love know. It. I, I couldn't believe it. it. And then I That's thought, oh my crazy. God, I've got, I've got to get shrunk here. Because they were both shrinks and they bought the apartment furnished from my parents in 1958. That's you, so and crazy. Never, I don't think they ever redecorated. So That's I did so go crazy. there and get shrunk there. So you went there just because? Yes. And I lied down in the same place that I'd laid down when I was an infant. So you weren't even like, I want therapy. You were like, no, no. Well, that was, you must have, that might've been the last time I ever did go to so therapy. You, so you, you don't find therapy useful. No, I take the drugs. And you're on, uh, in this depressant. Well, yeah. And anti-anxiety It's sort of a yeah, little I'm bit on of both. Drugs too, so. Yeah. I mean, I'm always going to be, I have no problem with it. Yeah. I mean, to me, there's obviously some kind of chemical, something that these, uh, medicines help me with. Um, but I'm totally fine with that. Yeah, I mean, they don't it, know how they work, but they do work. They have they have studies. Yeah, I don't I don't want to do stop work. them. Yeah, no, that's that's good. That's good. No, I mean, it's fine with me. I think it's yeah, been very helpful. I do too. I'm but a the big talk advocate. therapy for me was it never just working. Didn't work. No. So um, I'm also thinking that um, when you said you lived in eight, you went to eighteen different schools. Sixteen. Sixteen. Well, that's a detail. Why quibble? <laughs> so that must have made you really agile at making friends, or like, how did that? How I do you remember? So. I think how it do you did. remember that? Do you remember that as changing schools as normal? Did you have? Did you have trouble making friends? Do you like what was? Well, how I, did that I think affect I got you? very good at making friends, and also very good at letting them go. You know, mm-hmm. and and uh, but then some of them I kept. You know, my my friend Gina who's one of my closest friends, maybe, you know, I have like two or three, she's one of the two or three, tippy top. Uh, she was my best friend growing up. And we've known each other since birth. She was her mother that had those parties, you know, oh, wow. were friends of my parents. So we've always known each other. And that's very important to me to to have that uh, sort of history. And right. other and, and other friends that, you know, I went to high school with or whatever, or that I met from RISD, um, and I have all these friends in Sweden. You know, I've been living there on and off for many years. Oh, so okay. I have different sort of collections of friends that usually don't know each other. But And what about um, what happened when, I mean, part of that time you were, how old, you went to boarding school when you were 12? 13. 13 mm-hmm. to 18? or Yeah. And so that, there was consistency there, right? Well, yeah, it was such a small, it was great with this, this, this uh, reunion I just went to, but there was a lot of bluegrass music, you know, guys with great ponytails playing, you know, yeah, right. fiddles and banjos <laughs> stuff, but um, in the countryside, but it was great. You know, we were really close. And I think, you know, there's something about the kind of friendships you make when you're that age, when you're a teenager that are so intense and so close, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, that, that have a kind of meaning for me. And also I felt like that school and going away from my crazy mother saved me. You yeah, know, I was yeah. so uh, lucky that I could do that. Yeah. 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 No, it's impressive that, that self-preservation instinct. Definitely. And knowing, and, you know, it- that that's also true of, you know, when I was in, in, in Walden, I, you know, there were people that were like, uh, I loved Walden was also a really super progressive school in the city that I went to before then. Um, but, uh, you know, there were, there were people overdosing and stuff, but I never really got into drugs or anything Mm -hmm. because I saw that, you know, it was beyond just say no, like I saw it with my own eyes. And so I think that self-preservation thing really kicked in. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and what about like, so I'm curious about um, like, so working in these commercial creative fields, I always had so much self doubt. And whenever I was like tur- showing people the ads that I was, you know, making or the, you know, my boss, the creative directors, the p- products, whatever I was making, I was all, no matter who it was and no matter what the work was, I was always terrified. Like that I didn't, I was always afraid that it wasn't very good and I was going to get shot down. So you were in a lot of very difficult or very intense situations with your own work, which was even more personal to you. Um, so how did you feel about showing your work? Did you have self-doubt or did were you just like nonplussed about it? Well, it depends which thing you're talking about. On a creative level, on a visual level, on a design level, I've always felt that my work is really, really good. And I also knew that it was sometimes kind of innovative and different. Mm-hmm. So I got half or maybe more than half my illustrations killed. I used to call myself the queen of the Kilfees or Rosenworld, the little house that Kilfees built. It's like <laughs> a joke, but it was really true because mm-hmm. like I could never uh, sketch because I don't like repeating myself. So what I would do and still do actually when this happens is where the client says, you know, draw a bowl of fruit or whatever. So, okay, well, I'll draw it. And what I'm going to give you a finish. If you like it, it's a finish. And if you don't like it, it's a sketch. Because I didn't want to do like the normal process right. and what illustrators spend all their time doing. And it's the most, th- most illustrator thing in the world is to do sketches and sketches. And, and then you do, a, and then you do a comp and then a finish and then uh, change it, change it, change it. That's normal. But I would say, you know, I'm going to do a finished thing. And then if you don't like it, we'll call it a sketch and I'll do it over. So what ha- would happen is that like, most of the time they would say, no, we don't like it. And I would have to do it over and over and over. And sometimes for the New Yorker, which was my favorite client, I literally did things over a hundred times. It became like a complete psychosis. But I could never do like a rough sketch. This is what it's going mm-hmm. to look like because then I'd have to repeat myself. And so you- when I work, I like to make things up as I go along. And I don't want to have to be true to that thing that I showed the client uh, it's like I'm allergic to that, and I still am. So it's a really stupid way of working. Well. It's not at all practical. But it was fun, more fun for me. And that's what I was after, is that I wanted each job to be, because I always think like an artist or a painter, not like an illustrator. And, uh, you know, I know I have to communicate something, and I want to, and I hate the kind of design or illustration that doesn't communicate. So I'm I'm very traditional in that sense, but I want to experiment with the formal qualities, the line and the color and the shapes and how they fit together. I want to discover it as I go along. Mm-hmm. I don't want to make a promise and then have to keep it. You right. know what I mean? Absolutely. That well, takes away the fun for it, me. It sounds like um, you kind of established a situation um, which where you really had the authority, where you were really in control, because as you said, and and I I know this well as because I as an art director I would hire illustrators, you know, and have to have the work approved by my creative director client. I went through that. I know that, uh, and what you did is very unusual in the way that you set that situation up. So if anyone was hiring you, 
they were going to have to play by your rules in a way. Right, except it didn't really work. I don't want to make it sound like I was this big success story. I wasn't. I well, was I was successful on a creative level, but on a business level, it was a it was a disaster because like I said, I get half the stuff killed that never saw the light of day and I would get a kill fee. So instead of a big hundred dollars, I'd get fifty or whatever. I mean, that happened more than it didn't happen. But you got so higher you can't, well, you I, had people that would hire you regularly. Yeah, they must have been nuts. Oh, see? See, this <laughs> is what... No, but you had people... So whoever you worked with appreciated you for exactly what you did. Right. And they were... And you probably had good relationships with... I, I did. I think I had good relationships, especially at the New Yorker for a long time. Um, and I miss working for the New Yorker. I loved working for them, even though I had to do things over hundreds of times sometimes mm-hmm. yeah. because I respect the magazine. Sure, I love the magazine. I was reading it since I was little. You no, know? that's a big but, thing. Um, you know, I was doing stuff. There's this magazine called American Bystander that would let me write, you know, like their version of Shouts and Murmurs, like a humor mm-hmm. piece, and then give me a whole page to illustrate it. And that's wow. fun. Yeah. So, yeah, you should check out American Bystander. They're, they have like a... It's a you know the former National Lampoon people and stuff from oh, wow. LA. Yeah, oh, but wow. they they really have great illustrators that work for you know right. good people right. and cartoonists and stuff. So my, that's my favorite thing is when I can write something, hopefully a funny thing, and then illustrate it too. So that's what I do in my books, and that's what I did with you know mistakes mm-hmm. on purpose books and this other book memoir, which is spelled M E M W A H that I'm working on now, that I still haven't gotten the right publisher for but i will it's an illustrated memoir and hopefully funny but uh you know it's it's um how can i put this it's it's not it well it's it's not a uh i always fall sort of between the cracks of stuff like it's neither it's it's not a graphic novel mm-hmm, it's an mm-hmm. illustrated mm-hmm. memoir mm-hmm. you know it's illustrated so it doesn't but i don't think in boxes so right. like uh, like I said, it's like the book I was just looking at. It, hard to describe. It's very, it's very hard yeah, to describe. Right. Look That's it up. That's my specialty. Do your the- research, guys. <laughs> I'm going to post. I'll make it easy for you. All right. Okay. Jesus. Yeah. Anyway. So. Um, so. Um, but like, okay. So one of my biggest fears was being homeless. Seriously. Like, I mean, um, you know, I had parents, they didn't have a lot of money. They were very like, you know, you got to get a job. You got to get a job with health insurance. You got to get, have that paycheck, paycheck, paycheck. And so I was always really worried about being able to earn a living. And that had a big effect on my career and my self-esteem and everything else. Cause I was, well, I got fired a lot cause I was so afraid of getting fired. But anyway, um, back, back to the interview. So, did you, well, you sound like you had a very different take on money. Like you, like, not that you had a lot of it, but you weren't really worried about it. Like it, you were going to make enough money somehow or other. Well, like I said, um, I bought, it made a huge difference uh, in my life you, that I bought this loft in 1981. And because of that, I knew I wouldn't be homeless. I knew I wouldn't mm-hmm. be out on the street. I, you know, I owned it myself at a very young age and that changed everything for me but you must have had to make you know payments on it or food yeah of course and I didn't make a living 
you know, like I said, doing illustration and, and mostly working at magazines like, you know, and, and at the New York Times Magazine and at Mademoiselle and all the, yeah, I worked really hard and I made money, but I didn't make great money. Um, and I think mm-hmm. now that I'm doing more painting, I'm kind of on another track and right. I sell paintings, but I don't, um, you know, I, 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 I guess it's 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 pretty insane to think that you'll ever make money with books. Yeah. I mean, my last book or paintings, was pu- the Mistakes <laughs> on Purpose book, is published by Hachette, which yeah, is a big publisher. Good. But that doesn't guarantee. You know, books in general books don't, don't make, a make lot of money. money. We all know. You know, I'm not know I'm not Stephen King. Right. So right, so right. But right. But, but you figure yeah, you figure. You know, I'm seven. I'm sixty seven. Right. So if I'm lucky, I have another ten or twenty years. What am I going to do? Am I going to make stuff or not make stuff? Mm-hmm. Those are the two questions. Right. So I I don't really think about, you know, so, maybe I should worry more, but I I wake up every day and I either paint or write. Um, you know, I go to the library to write and I have a studio in Jersey City and I go and paint. And um, I painted in caustic, which is, uh, you know, melted beeswax. Mm. And because I wanted to paint really, really thick, opaque. Mm-hmm. Um and, uh, you know, I, I really love spend, that's what I want to spend my time mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. is making stuff. And then I, and then I still am writing and I'm mm-hmm. working on, you know, endless revisions mm-hmm. to memoir. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, every day I wake up and I make stuff because yeah. that's my MO. I guess having, right, having that apartment though gave you a, a little, well, there's a feeling of security just from that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm very, yeah. very lucky. And yeah. I know, well, I know I'm lucky. But also, um, you're so prolific. So I was wondering about your work habits. Are you like a workaholic? How do you, how have you, how have you made so much? How have you done so much? Have you created so many different things? Are you like, do you, do, well, what, I, what I never it, said they were good. Oh, They're just stop. a lot of things. No, really. Well, like, you must be. I mean, you have created a lot of things. I mean, have you had work, people working for you? Oh, periodically, I've had different assistants. I had one assistant, then I realized she was making more money than me, and I thought this just doesn't look right. <laughs> you know. So no, I. But are I'm, you working all the time? Like, yeah. Are I you mean, like really driven? I don't. I never would say driven. I watch a lot of TV, a lot of good TV. I'm not driven. I like to read. You know, I listen to audio books now all the time. And I, Me too. I have a little car and I drive everywhere. And I do, you know, uh, I mix it up. It's like about half the time I go up to this secret library. And uh, and I go and they have a writer's room on the top floor. And I go there Ooh. and I write and I write. And then... The other days I drive through the Holland Tunnel to Jersey City and I paint, 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 paint all day. And then I go home. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm either doing one or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, And once in a while I'll do a design job or an illustration job. But mostly I'm spending my time either writing, working on books and and Mm -hmm. painting um, and and doing workshops. I do workshops like the one I'm going to in Vancouver on the 30th and 31st of, of May this month. Um, and then, uh, so I go and do that a few times a year and I really want to find, you know, better venues to do like bigger, better, interesting venues to do the workshops. Mm. That's what I'm really bad at. I mean, I did have an assistant last year that was trying to help me, you know, book better 
places uh, for the workshops, but it's very hard mm-hmm. to know who to write to because there's places that do still have like corporate offsites and things like that. Mm-hmm. But think people are, you know, they want to know mm-hmm. what are they getting for their money. Right. You know, I don't blame yeah, them. Right. And, right. and things, belts are really tight and stuff. But, right. but I think that it's important, especially now, you know, have bring people in a company together mm-hmm. and it's fun and stuff. So I need to let people know that, but mm-hmm. it's hard to know how because, you know, I'm never going to have thousands and zillions of followers. I mean, I have Instagram, I have all that stuff, but, you know, I, it's very hard to, you know, be noticed unless you have a hundred thousand followers. And well, most that- of the people that are successful, like an illustrator, you know, has have they they have that well, if they're the work, thirty and they're not sixty seven because they grew up with it and they well, enjoy it. The work also has to be um, translate well on Instagram. I mean, I think you know I've seen that with a lot of painters who do really beautiful work, and if it doesn't read on Instagram, it can be the best work in the world, which is a terrible criteria to be evaluating work on, but it really does matter. So I'm also. Getting, I'm, I'm imagining you have a pretty active social life. I bet you have a ton of friends, right? I don't know. Could, I wouldn't say it's or maybe none. a ton, or but, but I, you're, you. I see you as somebody who's out with your friends, spend well, socializing. I yeah, mean, I, get I, invited I, places. We're yeah, having a party. No, 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 no. Nobody's having parties. No one has who's parties. Who's having parties? I don't know anyone really. No, I mean, I used to have a lot of parties Did when you? I had the oh, law. You must I, have had some great parties. I, I had fabulous parties. Now. Uh, you know, I, I had a dinner with two friends last night. Is that a party? I don't think so. I mean, it's That's not nice like thing. it's no. not like it, it's not like I'm going to nightclubs. You know, no, I hope not. Um, Who wants to do that? <laughs> I actually would love to do that if I could find the right one. But anyway, uh, how's a yes right here? Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay, we'll go. Okay. <laughs> I like that. I like that idea. Um, I'm a, I'm a club kid. Yeah, I could so. see that. I could see that. Yeah. I so, but I mean, you have you have an active social life. That's a that's part of well, we're talking if, of the whole pit picture. I really don't. No, 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 it, no. I think I think that you know people on social media, you know, texting each other and and stuff has replaced a lot of in person stuff. You're right about that. And them. I don't like it one bit. I'm not good at texting. I, for me, it's sort of like I want to see people in person, and um, I think even before the pandemic, that really went sort of south. So I'm I'm regretting that. I, I yeah, that. I know. I I think we all I think we all do. So we only have a minute left. I want to remind everybody. I want to thank you. Thank you, Laurie Rosenwald. Please go to rosenworld.com. Check out her book, How to Make Mistakes on Purpose, and um, make sure you look up her seminars and her um, t- TED Talk. And thank you for listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. Dr. Lisa gives a shit every Thursday, 2 to 3. Have a great afternoon, all right? We'll see you next week. Thanks, Lisa. Okay, so now we have 20 seconds. I could sing. But, um, okay, why don't you go to my Instagram, all right? Dr. Dr. Lisa Levy SP. Do that, okay? Or check me out. Send me an email anytime. Dr. Lisa at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org if you got something you want to. 